Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You're watching Deconstructive Criticism. My name is Aaron Flam. This episode's guest is Dr. James Lindsay, mathematician, cultural critic, and author of the book Cynical Theories, now available. In Swedish. I want to thank you for supporting Deconstructive Criticism. You can support my work on Patreon at patreon.com slash Aaron Flam in one word via PayPal, Bitcoin or Swish 0046 If you want to find out more about me, you can go to my webpage aaronflam.com or you can buy my book This is a Swedish Tiger as an e-book on Kindle or at aaronflam.com slash merchandise. James Lindsay was involved in what has become known as the Grievance Studies Affair. It all started as a prank back in 2017 when Lindsay and Peter Bogosian published a hoax paper titled The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct. Later that year, they teamed up with academic Helen Pluckrose to write 20 hoax papers for submission to peer-reviewed journals. When their cover was blown, seven out of 20 papers had been accepted and seven was under review. Together with Helen Pluckrose, James Lindsay has written the book Cynical Theories, now available in Swedish. He also has a YouTube channel called New Discourses that I highly recommend you watch. With these words, I present James Lindsay. Enjoy. Hello, how are you? I'm uh, great, thank you. And I want to welcome you to Deconstructive Criticism. Glad to be here. Uh, Dr. James Lindsay? That's correct. Hello. Well, um, my name is Aaron Flam. We haven't met before, uh, although I've uh, uh, been stalking you quite some. I've uh, done quite a bit of research on you, sir. And uh, uh, I must say, oh boy, you've done the work. Well, thank you. I, I think I have done the work. Um, there's a lot of work to do still, though. So I usually start uh, my podcasts um, uh, with a very general question to allow you to identify yourself. Uh, okay. So that question is quite simply, who are you? 
And <laughs> uh, that's a question I always hesitate to answer. Um, I'm actually awkward around biographies of myself, but I'll do what I can. I have a PhD in mathematics that I earned in 2010. Um, I did not continue in academia. I left academia when I finished my doctorate, uh, but I did teach math for the better part of eight and a half years at the university level uh, while I was earning it. And let's see what else I, in the middle, I guess in 2017 and 18, I participated in what's now known as the grievance studies affair. So what I did was I wrote with two colleagues whose names are Peter Bergoshin and Helen Pluckrose. I wrote a series of false academic papers to expose fields like gender studies, uh, critical race theory, um, critical pedagogy as it goes into education and fat studies and disability studies and so on. So we wrote these false academic articles that in my opinion are quite hilarious and quite obviously meant to be funny and to see if the peer review system would accept them in these kind of prestigious academic journals within the disciplines. And the answer turned out to be yes, they accepted seven of the articles that we wrote in just a few months before we got caught by the Wall Street Journal and asked to stop. So I thought we had exposed that something was rotten in the state of academia at that point, rather significantly. And uh, from there, we decided to focus on exposing it more fully, researching it, exposing it more fully. So the next big step was that I wrote a book with Helen, who also did the project with me called Cynical Theories, which was quite good at exposing what had happened. It was a kind of a runaway bestseller, to be honest with you. Um, I have both it, the English version version as an ebook and the Swedish version, uh, which your uh, Swedish publisher was kind enough to send me. I actually am looking around in the room. I don't know where it is. I actually have a copy of the Swedish version. It's the only foreign language edition that I have as I have the Swedish version here as well, uh, which is kind of interesting. Um, it was sent to me as a gift by, you know, somebody in Sweden. And so that's kind of exciting. Uh, very nice and generous people, the Swedes. And so we wrote Cynical Theories. It was quite successful. It focuses on the influence that postmodern philosophy and scholarship had upon uh, these critical theories that had been developing pri previously to create what we would call woke or critical uh, social justice or whatever now. And um, then I launched a company to continue the work of exposing this and to justify my research called New Discourses. And New Discourses has been quite successful. Uh, it's grown rather a lot in the last two years. It's now officially two years old this week or last week, I suppose. And um, I spend almost all of my time now reading, as you said, doing the work, reading, uh, whether it's Marxism, whether it's critical theory uh, or neo-Marxism, whether it's postmodern theory, whether it's this newer identity politics based Marxism and trying to characterize it for people so people can understand what's going on uh, with the scholarship and then how it links to what's happening in the world. There's so many questions uh, relating to this. I want to ask you first, but how come you specifically and Helen ended up as, uh, well, some would call it culture warriors, I suppose. I always joke and say that I fell backwards into it. I didn't intend to do that. Um, I got kind of involved with arguing with people online, as Helen also was very well known to have been doing. And uh, the direction of the arguments online, maybe in 2012, 13, maybe even earlier, 10 and 11, 
all started to skew toward talking about things like sexism and racism and so on, these culture war issues, and talking about them in a very particular and peculiar way, which is in terms of systemic racism and systemic sexism. And this started to um, lead to cancellations, as they call them now, of people who are working around us or that we were interested in or thought leaders that we were following. And so we started to dig into that issue and just started to see that as a significant issue, you know, many years before kind of the mainstream did, not before everybody. And so by 2014, at the latest, we were quite active at speaking up about it. Um, the reason that we went kind of full bore into it would have been when we were doing the Grievance Studies Affair. I can't speak for Helen, but I know for myself, at least, um, when we were doing the Grievance Studies Affair, we wrote one particular paper that was about education and uh, the response the peer reviewers gave it saying that it's a wonderful idea. The paper advocated child abuse uh, and it was a wonderful idea, but that the problem with it was that it's it, that it focused on using a compassionate approach and it should not because that might threaten to recenter the needs of the privileged is how they framed it. And at that, that sentence actually, was the one where, you know, as the internet meme goes, where the guy, it says, who radicalized you? And the guy leans in and says, you did. That was the moment. Uh, I saw that. And I remember getting on a phone with a friend of mine who was collaborating with us with it. His name's Mike Nana. And um, I talked to Mike and we decided that that sentence indicated something very dangerous and very nefarious. This isn't funny anymore is kind of the moment we had there. And uh I remember afterwards going to my wife and saying, this is the, a potential threat to all of Western civilization. This isn't a small, funny sideshow culture war. This is a very significant thing. If I would have had the vocabulary for it, I would have said this is the beginning of a cultural revolution. And I didn't have that vocabulary, though, at the time. And so I asked her if I could quit my job and focus on it full time um, to expose it to the world so that somebody would be ringing an alarm bell, because very few people, if anybody was doing so well uh, i will reserve the right to joke since i'm originally a comedian and that's how i handle tragedy um, sure, yeah 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 of course so so do i i mean my paper's about dog sex <laughs> yes uh, but, and i understand that in america in the american school system now um is it just that parents have started protesting against things like uh, what you call gender stud studies. Uh, I mean, I come from Sweden. Here it's called gender science and has been uh, in the school system uh, completely publicly uh, to everyone's uh, uh, cheers uh, since the early 90s. So, so, um, so, so is it, when I look at the US now, you see some sort of parental movement uh, before the midterms trying to dethrone Democrats. And one of the issues seems to be gender studies in school or gender science, depending on yes. your viewpoint. Well, it's, it's certainly not science unless we want to use these, the definition of science that somebody like Hegel used for a systematic philosophy, uh, which is that, you know, there's the, the facts of the world. What, what, rigorous people would call science and he classified that as as um verstand or understanding in german and uh, then there's this higher level understanding that is the system of philosophy the higher level reason that characterizes it and and gender studies as we call it in the u.s or gender science or gender sociology as it's called in sweden is not science it's marxist bullshit uh just to cut straight through it is not science it's it's 
I mean, I, you can make, I, you, you want to get together next week and make up 10 papers. We can't, it's not science. There's <laughs> next no science week. I'm in skiing it. in Italy. Hopefully if I pass the antigen test, but <laughs> yeah, but so, I'd love to it, really, uh, let's, let's do a circle on Shulamit Firestone. Yeah. So, so, um, there is a big pushback. It's centered primarily on, uh, critical race theory in the United States. And it's also centered on, uh, as a second kind of center of gravity on what we would call in the, in, in the U S they call it queer theory, which is an extension of the gender studies into a much kind of broader context. It's touching on gender, sex, sexuality, even states of mind, mental health, et cetera, and wages war on anything ever being considered normal. And so this has led to the introduction of um, pornographic books and children's school libraries and uh, what looks like the outright sexual grooming of children. Um, and so parents are rightly very upset about this. You know, again, this is public schools. This isn't that they sign their kid up for some weird private school that has some weird thing that they chose. This is the, the state run school. And so it's very upsetting. Uh, to parents. And so there's a big pushback against all of this. And what my work does actually is characterizes that these aren't separate things. This is all part of one much larger project. And that itself is part of even one even larger project to fundamentally remake Western civilizations um, for people who want to exert power and control over over people. I, I, I've consumed quite a uh quite a lot of your lectures uh, and uh, YouTube videos, uh, as well as read your book. But could you give me, and uh, most of all, probably my listeners, um, uh, your elevator pitch for how it all seems to fit together, this uh, cultural revolution that threatens the West? Well, I mean, there are two pieces. So an elevator pitch is very difficult because there are two elevator pitches that have to be given. All the, right. The one elevator pitch for the kind of cultural identity studies, like critical race theory, gender science, or whatever you want to call it, um, all of that is actually what happened in the 1960s was that the Marxists realized that the working class were not going to be a revolutionary force. So they threw the working class out and replaced them with identity politics. They reached to the racial minorities, the sexual minorities, the gender minorities, uh, and so on. And the mentally unwell, so the mental health minorities, uh, they reached out to these people and they, they started to get them to see their problems in terms of what is ultimately a Marxist style conflict theory, where instead of economic class being the stratifier of society, now it's whether or not you're normal, whether or not you're uh, white or black or whatever race. So all of a sudden it became identity politics became the stratifying variables instead of economic class. But Marxism, in other words, reinvented itself. So what we're dealing with is within, whether it's critical race theory, whether it's um, gender science or studies, whether it's queer theory, is we're seeing the reinvention of Marxism, Marxist theory, using identity politics in place of economic class. And so they are working actually in conjunction. If you understand Maoism, they work in conjunction with one another. Mao created a list of bad identities and a list of good identities. He called them black and red, but that's beside the fascists and communists is why, but that's beside the point. Um, what he did was he labeled people he wanted to modify, especially in schools, 
uh, school children. He labeled them in black identities, and then he gave them a pathway to become a red identity. And this is exactly what you see with critical race theory calls everybody a racist, but it allows you to become an ally, or you could go and undergo gender transition and something like this and become some kind of a politicized radical identity. So you have a set of bad identities and a pathway to becoming good identities where the good identities are all political radicals. And it creates a funnel that's pressing mostly, again, young people through to get them to become radical activists uh, using the relevant theory. For Marx, it was economics. And for um, today, it's the identity politics. So allyship, solidarity, uh, transitioning, adopting an obscure sexuality that seems like it was made up in the past three years. As long as those are all political identities, becoming politically black, as they say, becoming a black face that wants to be a black voice, uh, as uh, one of our, our congresswomen said, uh, these are the kinds of things that, they, that they're doing. So what we see is a Maoist project creating a cultural revolution that fits within a broader project that is not unique to the United States. And just kind of, you know, everybody says, oh, you ex export your culture war to the rest of the world. No. It turns out that somebody else is helping them export it. It's not just because it's on television. It's because there are these entities, for example, at the, the World Economic Forum that have created and these large banks that they're partnered with and the governments are partnered with that have created tools like an environmental social governance score, which is a social credit system for institutions and companies. And if you want to get your social score within ESG, environmental social governance, social refers to social justice initiatives. They dictate what those look like when they're correct. And and this set of identity Marxist policies is how they've decided we're going to have a diverse, inclusive, equitable future, they talk about. That, if you want to have a high S score for your institution, whether it's your company, whether it's your university, whether it's your government, and therefore be taken care of by large asset firms like BlackRock and Vanguard and Goldman Sachs, and to be on the page with whatever the agenda the Davos agenda of the World Economic Forum or the UN sustainability agenda that they're tied in with. If you want to be on the right side of all of the, that and all of the trade agreements and the treaties and everything else, then you have to make sure that you're adopting these principles on the global scale. So there are two pieces. There's the culture re cultural revolution in the United States meant to break it apart and throughout other Western nations as well, using identity politics like Marxism so that they, these places become destabilized and can get wrapped up into something else. Simultaneously, you have this large global push through coordinated um, supranational actors like the World Economic Forum and International Monetary Fund and the United Nations working in conjunction with the CCP uh, to create a structure in which that's the way everybody has to behave all the time. And they're the ones that are actually the exporters. Uh, they're the ones who are creating the conditions by which lots of money and lots of support uh, and all the corporations, you see no corporations taking another stand. They, nobody, no experiments are happening. Every, just like with COVID, everybody's going in exactly one direction. And I, I can tell you a funny detail. It might mean nothing. Uh, I don't know what you know about Sweden. Um, Sweden is a long time social democracy. Mm -hmm. And uh, the political scale uh, from, uh, that we view the world through is a bit different than the one you see in the United States. What sure. you guys, uh, or at least your right-wing and Republicans now called libtards or liberals, I would <laughs> mostly, uh, I would call them fake liberals and uh, true social democrats in a, in a way. I mean, I come from, uh, here in Sweden, we have a state institute of gender science. 
Yeah. Uh, so we've been doing this for a while. And in, in 2018, I started, uh, the, you could see at least one or two government reports talking about CRT and white fragility, which is interesting because Sweden has never really had a problem with African slavery. I mean, we had uh, Vikings who uh, in the year 800 or something took slaves, but I don't think they were mostly African, probably Danish or German or <laughs> French. Yeah. Uh, or I mean, uh, Gallic or whatever you called, uh, yeah, they called themselves yeah. back then. Um, so um, it's interesting to see what's happening to you. And we seem to be getting some back. And I mentioned Shulamit Firestone because we have a, a sociologist here called a professor uh, called Yvonne Hirdman. And she's uh, famous for uh, uh, conceptualizing, I, say, I guess you would say, uh, uh, what she called the gender system. And it's really a simplification that borrows heavily from Shulamit Firestone. This was done in the late 80s and then introduced into a government official investigation. And then, as is usually the case in Sweden, which is a collectivist consensus society, uh, mm. uh, turned into law or policy. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, that's where we're at. And I think we in Finland are... Uh, the two, uh, because Norway got rid of gender science and gender pedagogy in school, uh, but Finland and Sweden uh, still has them. And you can see uh, that the results are, they, 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 they started going up in the beginning, especially for girls, and then declining rapidly for boys. Now they're declining for both sexes. But the, yes. the gender difference between the sexes are, uh, are now abysmal, abysmally large. Uh, yes. So, so um, um, and, and, that's, uh, and, and that's what I uh, wanted to talk to you about, because uh, you define yourself as a liberal in, a, in the American country, context, right? Sort of. I don't know. I've noticed in the American context that I keep using the pronoun we when I talk about conservatives lately. I define myself primarily in the, as a liberal in the gold flag context. Uh, so what... Um, what most what, what what Americans I'm not exactly what Americans call a libertarian, but something closer to that that you know government should be extremely small and limited, et cetera. Um, that we have have rights that are I don't even believe in a creator, but that precede the state by one means or another, endowed by a creator as one means of of framing that, and that the role of the government is to to help secure those rights for the citizens with the consent of the governed. Those kinds of views are the views that I hold. Um, so, you know, my, my orientation is primarily toward uh, liberty and uh, the maximum individual liberty and therefore individualism, seeing people not as, as members of a collective, but rather as individuals who can, you know, willfully participate in a society in the ways that they choose to do. Uh, so, but how do you distinguish the, yourself from other people in the United States who call themselves liberals? Uh, the vast majority of the people in the United States who call themselves liberals um, actually do want something, as you said, they're, they're, they're false liberals. They are not actually interested in liberalism as a political philosophy. If we look at, say, John Locke or Thomas Jefferson or any of these kinds of characters, Thomas Paine and you know whoever else, they, they are not interested in that kind of a political philosophy. They are actually closer to what you would call social democrats. Um, they want a kind of um, as, a, as a, the Democrat part of that is that they want a 
not necessarily so much representative democracy, but a kind of very uh, direct, more and more direct democracy from the people. And they want large social programs that that democracy is in choosing, you know, what, how they're going to direct, you know, a very large public uh, slush fund, really, that they're going to be bringing in through high taxes, etc. They see I mean, kind of, I've been thinking this lately, I see that there are sort of three answers to the question and uh, who is responsible for solving the problems that we face as a very general question. And the three answers I kind of perceive that people give are God and then society and then the self, the individual. And if you draw a triangle and put those at the three corners, instead of a political spectrum, I think in terms of that political triangle now, and the right wing generally tends toward God and the conservatives and the the leftists generally tend toward uh, society. It's society's responsibility to come together collectively to solve our problems. And that people that I consider myself as a liberal tend toward, no, we're going to take personal responsibility. God helps those who help themselves as Benjamin Franklin famously quipped. Um, And so I think more it's that, you know, we need to take up action as individuals who can cooperate if they choose to voluntarily form it. So it's like teamwork versus collectivism being two different ways of organizing people. Uh, So the, the voluntary aspect that each individual can choose which associations they want to be involved in and which ones they don't is, is in that top corner or the self corner, which however you want to orient the triangle doesn't matter. Um, so what distinguishes me is I'm closer to that self. It's up to us to solve, solve our problems. And we should have as much personal responsibility in that in the so-called Adam Smith, invisible hand will emerge as an emergent phenomenon to individuals trying to solve their own problems in the best way they can with a political structure, liberalism, that's designed to minimize violent conflict between people who don't agree. Whereas the people who call themselves liberal in the United States, the democratic party types, are much closer to that society solves our problems, we are a collective, which is ultimately actually leftism, not liberalism. So if you think of there being three political poles, not two, it's not liberal versus conservative, it's conservatives, liberals, and leftists as three different orientations. Most of the people in the United States who call themselves liberals are actually much closer to leftists. Very few of them are actually liberal in their orientation, more or less at all. And I very much am. Most of the people in the United States who consider themselves libertarian are very close to that liberal axis, but I think they go more extreme than I do. I find would probably place myself, you know, slightly uh, toward the middle of the, not in the exact center on the, on the liberal part of the triangle, but. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Slightly uh, toward the center from what a pure, you know, again, Thomas Jefferson or uh, Thomas Paine kind of view of liberalism would be. I think that's a little bit... A little bit naive to be purely that each individual will solve all of his own problems for himself and everything will work out great. I think that that misses something, but nevertheless, it's interesting to hear you say that. I, I've I've never thought about it like that, but I usually divide up humanity into uh, individualists on one hand, and then uh, two different types of collectivists: egalitarian and hierarchical. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Um, and that would be very similar, actually, uh, to, to, you could draw a, a very similar triangle. And in fact, these two triangles might overlap virtually perfectly, depending on how you want to label the corners. And so um, I certainly am, am not in that leftist category, though. That's what distinguishes me. I, I don't accept the idea that it's my responsibility to solve somebody else's problems. Uh, in the most, you know, at, at a general level, there may be places where I might need to be asked to contribute or something, or there where it's sensible to. But at, at other, in, in general, society doesn't fix our problems. Individuals solving their small problems scales up by the by the by the magic of emergent um, properties of, of behavior. Yeah, I think uh, you're right. That's why it's so troublesome for a, a person who lives in. Uh let's say, the outskirts of the West, the mm-hmm. northeastern outskirts of the West, two hours flight from Ukraine, by the way. Yeah. Uh, so um, it's troublesome to see the most individualist country in the world, the United States, uh, descending into, I guess you would use the word uh, quagmire or John Stewart once upon a time used the word clusterfuck. Um, yeah. So, uh, so uh, do you see any any uh, potential? Uh, do you see any potential hope or a- any good forces uh, uniting apart from your own new discourses? Yes, actually. I mean, I get asked to travel all around the country. Uh, I think it would be I could say around the world if it weren't for the the pandemic restrictions. But I get asked to travel all around the country. I, I average a trip and a half a week, so three trips every two weeks on average. I take. And I go somewhere and I speak with people and there are small organizations and large organizations kind of cropping up all over the United States now that are not, I don't like the word populist because it has a certain, um, certain flavor to it that people think it leads to fascism, but there, these are freedom loving people who are very large, you know, in some cases, very large grassroots movements that are building. I mean, there's a, an example, Utah is not a particularly 
you know, famously large and populous state in the United States. Maybe people have heard of it, but they have a parents organization that has something like 60 or 70,000 members that they put together in a year. So there's, there, that's a lot of people to get together uh, in, a, in a state that I think has only 3 million population or less. And so there, there are some things happening all around and they dip into the, my new discourses for, for inspiration and information, but they're not affiliated with me. I'm not creating a gigantic movement under my direction and I don't want to. So I see this happening like state after state. I was just in Florida last week and I saw it there. There's a gigantic organization headquartered there called Moms for Liberty. And Moms for Liberty is now got 31 or 32 states, 175-ish chapters where it's just getting everyday moms and I guess dads alongside their wives active to take on what's happening in the schools and in their their kind of local governance level uh, issues. And so these things are happening. Uh, and there are a lot of reasons for hope. I, I'm afraid of how much power our government administrations we've seen just recently with Canada more than the United States, but the United States has all of these capabilities and more as well uh, to step away from, you know, their, their oath to the constitution that we take so seriously and do something that's very tyrannical and very, uh, very much forcing kind of a collectivist mindset on us. There are reasons to be very nervous in other words, but I see a lot of reasons for hope and people I think have been sleepy maybe since 1989 when, the Soviet Union collapsed, the Berlin Wall came down, and it, people incorrectly believed that large collectivist ideologies had been left in the past. And Francis Fukuyama writes The End of History, implying that liberalism of the American sort will now just slowly spread around the world. And that's not what happened. Of course not. Um, and I think we went to sleep, but I think we're also waking back up very quickly. And it's, I find, I feel like, um, I feel very encouraged most of the time, where a year ago, I felt very discouraged most of the time, because I felt like people thought I had lost my mind and that I didn't have the slightest idea what I was talking about. And now, when I say things about what's happening, people say, oh, yeah, I see that. You're right. This is the best way to understand there is a good way to understand this. Thank you. You know, and then what can I do? Okay. And then lawyers are thinking things up and teachers are thinking things up and people are, it's nascent, it's new, but people are figuring things out uh, and taking action. So I find it very encouraging. I, I tell people I'm cautiously optimistic, whereas previously I was hopefully pessimistic. So that's a that's a bit of improvement. Well, it's very good to hear. Uh, over here, it's pitch black with no hope of redemption. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I worry a lot about Europe in general. Um, the Europe lurched into this kind of uh, tyrannical control model much, and I'm no expert in what's happening in Europe, so don't let me mislead you, um, but it lurched much more, much more thoroughly and quickly than the United States did. I've been invited to Europe, but I refuse to get injected, and so I don't come to Europe. Um, it's just not possible. I've been invited to do things in a handful of European countries last year and this year, and I refuse to take the shot, uh, mostly because they tell me I have to, which makes me think that there's something fishy about that. <laughs> and so I refuse to do it just because I've been told I must. I've even had the the, the virus. I, why, why do I care? Um, but uh, I've so, done too many drugs in my uh, youth uh, to say no to free ones. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, because it would be hypocrisy. I've literally eaten things out of bags I found on streets when I was young. So. 
Uh, it would be strange mm -hmm. if I refused a little needle that for once was clean. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but, but yeah, Europe has lurched much, much more uh, quickly and deeply into this. And then simultaneously, of course, you know, as you pointed out, two hours flight from Ukraine, you're right on the edge now of a um, teeth gritting conflict that is will have is having already global implications of kind of the most serious sort and uh the nature of that conflict um superficially appears very clear but if you scratch the surface it's not at all clear what's going on for in reality between russia and ukraine not at all clear and what the what that means for you know eastern and northeastern and central europe and, and the rest of the world also remains very unclear if you don't know actually what's good. Well, in either case, if you do believe you know what's going on or you don't know what's going on, it is not clear how that's going to play out globally and regionally. So it, it, Europe is in a, I, I don't envy my European friends and the prospects that they're staring at, but I also am a naive American and maybe an American chauvinist a little bit, where I believe that if America holds, then there's hope for everybody else on the other That's side. That's uh, pretty much who, how I've, I view it. I've been in your country enough times to know it isn't perfect, but I also know uh, as superpowers go, there are far worse alternatives. And yeah. uh, we're about to find that out the hard way, it looks like. Yeah. Um, I was going to bring up something that might trouble you, but you know, I'm uh, uh, I'm from the same country as um, Dr. Michael Nilsson, who has uh, criticized uh, cynical theories in the Israeli paper Germany owned uh, uh, Haaretz. Uh, could you tell me a bit about that? You know, uh, I don't think very much about it. I read his criticism once some time ago. Um, I find him to be a bit a bit amusing, uh, to be honest with you. Um, I read, I read these kinds of criticisms and typically my reaction is to laugh and then to go on with my day. And, you know, as a Southern American, and I don't know that this translates into Swedish very well, but we say things like bless your heart when we think that we <laughs> yes. want to say something. You relatively say bless your heart, but it sounds like bless your little brain for some reason. That's exactly what it means. Bless <laughs> your little brain. Um, yeah, I mean, He's a, he's an interesting character. And I, you know, I got a lot of criticism. There are a lot of criticisms of cynical theories. And in fact, I did a podcast. I got frustrated enough with these. His might've been among them. Uh, in fact, it might've been the one that triggered it. I don't remember somebody. It was, uh, <laughs> it was. And yeah, so I did was. a podcast. You, you called about, the podcast. There's no part, uh, no good part of Hitler's mind Kampf. No, this, I actually had a different podcast as well, but no, I did one specifically about him that there is no good part of Hitler's Mein Kampf. I actually reread Mein Kampf uh, in December and I, I still stand by it. It's not a very good book, um, but, uh, but I did another podcast where I said that I was giving the criticism, the actual criticism that cynical theories deserves. As the author, I know its shortcomings and I know its shortcomings very well. And I don't think that the ones that people are trying to point at are the shortcomings of cynical theories. The shortcomings of cynical theories are that it's narrowly focused on postmodernism while ignoring critical theory in the broader Marxist context. And so I did a podcast about that. As far as there being no, I mean, if we wanna go after 
um, Nielsen directly, it's very simple. You know, he said that we picked for one of our fake papers. So back to the fake paper thing, it wasn't actually about cynical theories that we wrote. One of our papers was accepted by a social work journal. And what we did was we took a chapter of Mein Kampf and we took out everywhere Hitler said our movement and replaced it with intersectional feminism. And then we just started fudging things to make it work. And we had to change a lot of the language because there are plagiarism machines that will tell if you've plagiarized and we didn't want it to be given away. And it turns out that the way they work is they detect three consecutive words. So very rarely could we leave three consecutive words intact. Um, and so we had to move the words around and change the wording a lot, use a lot of synonyms and things so that it would disguise the fact of what it was. But it was the same argument that Hitler was making, but saying that we need solidarity uh, in the intersectional feminist movement, as opposed to in the, uh, what he was describing as his movement, the, the national socialist workers party of Germany, uh, the Nazis. And so, um, you know, he said, well, we chose chapter 12, which is the least bad. It's just this kind of descriptive chapter of what his movement will require of people. Right. And I disagree with his characterization. He says it's the least bad chapter of Mein Kampf that we chose the most, milk toast one we didn't go you know chapter 11 it turns out is the one where hitler really lets loose on the jews you know he really fires up about them they mentions the jews over 300 times in chapter 11 and so my rebuttal to him was really that's the point right so hitler's book if for those who haven't read it begins where he's complaining about his experiences in in vienna and elsewhere he's complaining about what he sees politically he's complaining about the circumstances of germany following the world war, first world war and preceding that he's complaining about his own life he's spends a lot of time in the second and third chapter complaining about the marxists who he hates and he thinks are ruining germany and he says he hates them and he says that it caused him to lose his mind arguing and i actually find that maybe there's one good part of mine Kampf. but then he goes on and says that um i suddenly realized you know in my anger one day i think this is in the second chapter that all the marxists are jews and then all of a sudden there's a massive change in the direction of the book and so then chapter 11 as it, it was sorry it builds up and he gets madder and madder and madder at his political enemies so by chapters four and five and six and seven he's very angry at his political enemies these are often tied back to jews and a very anti-semitic uh kind of conspiracy theory that he's laid out and then by chapter 11 it which is the chapter famously about race and politics he lays into both the jews and his answer in an aryan kind of race mythology with, you know, racial superpowers, a very positive eugenics approach to creating a super race, a super munch race out of, out of Germans and, and, and Teutonic peoples and Anglo-Saxons. And so these are the people that he's identified as being the excellent superior people, and they're going to be fostered into a, a super race to win a race war against all of these inferior races. And there's no mingling and you can't mix blood. That's where you get the blood and soil thing from. And so he rails on them in this chapter 11. And then chapter 12, he says, we need a movement. So the first chapter of the solution to what he's laid out as a gigantic race, race problem and conspiracy theory in the Jews, massive anti-Semitism. The next chapter in the book is we need a movement to solve this problem. That's not the best. That is not the least bad chapter. That is the beginning of the nightmare. And so that's the one that we translated into intersectional feminist language or transliterated, I suppose, into intersectional feminist language. So I disagree with his characterization. Um, I would understand, I would sympathize with his argument if I kind of step back and abstract from what he's trying or wanting to say. Hitler had, well, 
the 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 intersectional feminist project is not Nazi. It is not national socialist in orientation. My new book, Race Marxism, I have an entire section where I go into ex, kind of exquisite detail, pointing out that even though it uses racial folkish nationalism, even though it has this kind of these kind of uncanny parallels, even though it actually classifies Jews as white and then scapegoats Jews in the same way that the Nazi scapegoats Jews. What we're dealing with in critical race theory, for example, is in fact Marxist, not Nazi. It is not fascist. It is in fact communist. And so if we take back to the furthest step, Nielsen's best criticism that he could have given is he's conflating a communist movement and a fascist movement. And in fact, if you look closely at the contours of this intersectional feminist or uh, this um, critical race theory that he's complaining about, you will find no contours of Nazism. You'll find no positive race ideology. There's no positive race ideology in it. You'll find instead a Marxian conflict theory that at the time of writing, they were naive and didn't understand and therefore conflated things they shouldn't have conflated. That would have been the best argument that he could have made against what we actually did. But that's not the argument that he made. He said no. that, you know, we fundamentally misunderstood what we were doing and that these fields are actually doing important social work and correct direction and that we're actually clowns who don't know what we're talking about. I and, think he left um, you a clue at the end of the article. I don't know if you remember. I but, don't. Well, uh, I might. But, but the last paragraph was basically a rallying cry for socialist ideology. He mm, said, yeah. uh, 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 guys like uh, James Lindsay or Peterson uh, or Ivar Arpi of Sweden, uh, uh, they, uh, they are conservative or paleo conservative individuals and they just want to destroy uh, uh, equity, I think you would uh, call it in American English nowadays. Um, the Russian yeah. word originally is shugalyevism. It means sameness. It's not the same mm. as equality. But and and uh, I, I wanted to bring him up because you see, um, a few years ago, I wrote a book here in Sweden uh, about uh, what I call the Swedish culture of culture of si silence. Uh, that's permeated uh, the entire social democratic reign, which is almost 100 years. Uh, yeah. So um, it, it looked like this. And then the state prosecuted me for, uh, they said, the, the, the cover of the book, uh, mm. because I had defamed the national symbol. Um, but it was really about the content. Um, and Michael Nilsson, um, he... Uh, he hadn't read the book, but he told me on Twitter that I was a liar and a charlatan. And, uh, and then he started, uh, uh, what do you call it when someone badmouths you? Uh, smear? Slime, yeah, he started smear, smearing libel. me on Twitter for months. And that yeah. went on until, um, uh, until I had won appeals court. Uh, my case went up to appeals court and I won and I was free of charges. And then uh, the day after I had won, the biggest social democratic paper, Arbetet, uh, published an interview with Nilsson. And then uh, the think tank of the social democratic ruling party, uh, the workers' movement, and the unions uh, started uh, collecting money online for him to write a book to smear me. So mm. I just wanted to, you to know, when it comes to Michael Nilsson, uh, he is not entirely objective, and I know you've talked a lot about how these people uh, from uh, what you might call these leftist contingencies operate. Uh, yeah. Would you like to expand? 
Well, I mean, he's done similar things to me on Twitter as well. I don't pay very much attention to him and my account is so large. This isn't a kind of a bragging thing. This is a structural problem I don't know how to deal with and maybe shouldn't deal with. Uh, the, the way that Twitter is structured is, is if your account gets larger and larger, they only give you notifications from people who have significant, uh, also larger accounts or the blue check mark. And so I very, I'm very frequently only see things from him if somebody sends them to me directly, because otherwise I, it's not that I'm ignoring him. It's that it's not even delivered to me in a meaningful context that I can see. Or if I have every now and then I will stumble across it. I'll see it just by chance. I never search my own name. So I, I don't go looking for, I never ever do. I just don't care what people are saying about me and I find it distracting and a waste of time. So, um, this is this is exactly the kind of thing. Well, he gives this clue about it, you know, rallying cry for socialists. This is a thing that they do. They attempt to manufacture a sense of false consensus, which is very dangerous in a country like Sweden, where you said that it is a collectivist consensus driven society. Um, this is what, in fact, the postmodern philosophers, one of the things that they got more right than wrong. They still had their parts that were wrong within it. Now, John Francois Lyotard, for example, wrote about the legitimation by parology. And nobody knows what that means. But what it means is that we tend to go with consensus and that consensus can in fact be, and if, what he said was it in fact is a political phenomenon. What, what we might even in its more extreme manifestations, it takes on the, the shape of mass formation psychosis as the phrase of the year happens to be already. And so, you know, they, the, the, the socialist approach very frequently is to generate a sense of, of, consensus that you know nobody in their right mind or nobody intelligent and educated or nobody who's a good person would say these things and so you try to create a consensus push away from people who say inconvenient truths for their uh, political ideology and every political ideology faces inconvenient truths as there's particularly faces a lot of them um, as it turns out because well, at least if it's marxist socialism which not all socialism is, but if it's Marxist socialism, Marx was a disaster. His philosophy is, catas is a catastrophe. It doesn't work. It's completely an inversion of reality. So it's going to create inverted results, which isn't means the inversion of flourishing and living is failing and dying. And so, and that's what you see everywhere. Marxism has been forced into power. So, you know, it doesn't surprise me to see this kind of behavior. Um, it doesn't surprise me one bit to see this kind of behavior um well i wanted you I to know comment, that every but... time someone sends you a tweet from him or whatever uh, you can send uh, uh, you know uh, uh, a thought of thanks to the swedish social democratic government who helped finance him our school yeah, well, minister helped that? to collect money for him online yeah how about that um that's the other thing is a lot of these things are very crooked. We talked about the American phenomenon of these parents fighting back for school boards. What I find in state after state after state that I travel to is that uh, parents are, are getting informed, they're digging in, they're finding out what's going on for real in their school boards. And that what you have is a small number of fairly well healed and very well financed activists who are coming in and they work up a group of people in the local area that make noise and can push things around as it turns out this is straight out of the this is this is what if we were in the military we would call an insurgency model they're engaging in insurgent behavior it's sad to find out that the social democratic government of sweden is is um financing an insurgent for a for for their political program 
Um, but this is this is the name of of dirty politics. This is this is how it works, and it's unfortunate. And at, I actually interestingly spoke with a um, military intelligence officer recently uh, in my own personal life, and we were talking about insurgency and counterinsurgency. And he was actually a counterinsurgency expert for the U.S. Navy. And um, what he pointed out to me was that the way that you stop the insurgency model is by shining light on it. You put a spotlight on the guy who's receiving money. You show the where the transactions are taking place, and then people don't entrust. They, they no longer trust the insurgent, and he can't whip up the local population because he's seen as a troublemaker. And uh, so it's helpful. We should we should thank the the Swedish government every time he does his propaganda, because uh, every time that that people become aware of that connection, he becomes less influential with his propaganda. I hope so. I hope you're right. I've taken up quite a lot of your time, I see. Uh, but I want to thank you so much for coming on Deconstructive Criticism, and I hope I can call you again at some point in the future. Yeah, we can do that. We can definitely do that. Thank you. Thank you, James Lindsay. No, thank you. Thank you for listening to or watching Deconstructive Criticism. This episode's guest was James Lindsay. You can find his work on YouTube under New Discourses. And the book Cynical Theories is available online. You can find the link to the Swedish translation on my webpage aronflam.com in the description of this episode. Thank you for supporting Deconstructive Criticism. You can support my work on Patreon at patreon.com slash aaronflam via PayPal, Bitcoin or Swish 0046-076894-3737. If you want to find out more about me, you can always visit my webpage aaronflam.com or buy my book as an ebook on Kindle, This is a Swedish Tiger. Uh, it is also available on my webpage at aaronflam.com slash merchandise. My name is Aaron Flam. Until next, have a good unit of time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.